That is a live picture, and obviously a major fire in a large building in the South Bronx region of New York City. That's a live picture, and obviously the fire department in the Bronx have their problems. My goodness, that's a huge place. It's an abandoned apartment building. That's Howard Cosell during the 1977 World Series at the Yankee Stadium in New York City. The Yankees were playing the Dodgers, and they were already down 2 nothing. That's when ABC's aerial camera panned out over the stadium in the heart of the Bronx to show 60 million viewers another spectacle, a real Bronx fire. That's a live shot again of that fire in the South Bronx that Keith called to your attention just a few moments ago. This is the moment that Cosell allegedly coined the phrase, the Bronx is burning. He never really said that, but the Bronx was burning. Fire on a fifth floor in a popping fly Occupants are being removed where necessary. By the mid-70s, there were 40 fires a day, almost two fires per hour. By the end of the decade, nearly 80% of the housing stock in the South Bronx was destroyed. Some areas lost as much as 97% of their buildings because of fire and because they were abandoned. The South Bronx was often compared to bombed-out cities of Germany during World War II. And in 1979, the New York Times described it as a terrain that has come to personify neglect and hopelessness. If you ride that 205 train back 70s, all you seen was burnt buildings. They was, the frame would be there, but you can see that the, the, it was torched. Yeah, in, in those days, it, it was bad. I mean, there was all the apartment buildings were being vandalized, burned, broke down, you know, just, just like a, a ghost town, pretty much. The Bronx had become the arson capital of the world. This is the Bronx in New York. One and a half million people live in this borough. It's the home of the New York Yankees, the Bronx Zoo, and the Grand Concourse. Once that smoke on the horizon signified industry, progress, jobs. Now it means someone is burning down a building. I'm Anna Muto. And I'm Leanne Herter. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we're focusing on the 1970s. We'll look beyond the bell-bottoms and disco to explore what made this decade notorious in New York's history. A decade in which the Big Apple went by a far more sinister nickname. Unionized employees of New York City who faced dismissal have put out a booklet describing Fun City as Fear City. Crime was rising. By the mid-70s, on average, there were four murders a day in New York. Today, it's closer to one. People were fleeing. Nearly one million people left the city by the end of the decade. They took their money with them. New York wasn't just broken. It was broke. In the Bronx, if people could leave, they did. The ones who couldn't were often stuck living in apartment buildings that were neglected by landlords. They lived without heat, with broken windows and out-of-service elevators. Repairmen refused to go into flooded basements because they were infested with rats and water bugs. 
they lived without running water. Eventually, conditions got so bad and rents so high that those tenants tried to leave too. That's when the buildings were set on fire. As it emptied out, you know, the landlord started setting fires. In some cases, it was the landlords or the people they hired who set them on fire. And sometimes it was the residents themselves. So how did this happen? How did a neighborhood that once promised the American dream disintegrate into flames? A lot of factors and theories, but turns out the system was a strong force. Financial incentives and government policies, some going as far back as the 1930s. Policies that, for the most part, targeted people of color and immigrants. And nowhere else symbolized the rise and fall of the Bronx, more than one building on one boulevard where many once dreamed to live. Roosevelt Gardens on the Grand Concourse. This is Season 2, New York Drop Dead. And you're listening to The Bronx is Burning. The Theodore Roosevelt Apartments opened in 1922. It was a grand building on the Grand Concourse. The, the Concourse at that time did not have these commercial establishments on the ground floor. It was, that was, it was too, too pure for that. It was, it was the Grand Concourse. This was the Champs-Élysées, the Bronx of, of, of New York. That's Galvin Stevenson. He's 77 years old. He moved to the Bronx in the early 1970s when he married his wife, Clara. My wife is Puerto Rican, yes, and very proud of it. (laughs) Clara told him, marry me, marry the Bronx. Or so the family history is told. And so Galvin and Clara spent the next 40 years in the Bronx, a few blocks away from the Grand Concourse. This was right out of Paris. You know, you don't have bodegas and, and delis and some things on the, on the streets like that. that was Galvin is giving us a tour of the Grand Concourse and Roosevelt Gardens, a building he once wrote about back in the 70s. He's an economist, and back then, he was also a journalist. That was not, not this image and not the way the, the politicians saw it or allowed it to become for a while. When the building first opened its doors to tenants... There were large gates that led into the courtyard. An elegant fountain stood right in the middle. And when the sunlight caught the water at just the right angle, this place literally sparkled. Mm, the old coffee stain. We found the old blueprints for Roosevelt Gardens at the Bronx Department of Buildings Borough office. Maybe it's just me, but looking at blueprints is exciting. Blueprints are a promise. What a building can be. Are these even bigger blueprints? Oh my God, I'm going to cry. It's on a canvas. Eventually, the apartment complex was expanded to 14 buildings, six stories high. They were rechristened as the Roosevelt Gardens. And after World War II ended in 1945, the owner wanted to make the gardens even more exclusive. We found a letter from his lawyer to the acting Bronx borough president. Dear Mr. Herman, you will recall that I spoke to you recently about these premises. So, like, they wanted to make it, they wanted to put a restaurant in for them. They wanted to make it luxurious. Luxurious. Is that in the 40s? That's 46, February, February 21st and 13th, 1946. Roosevelt Gardens was this grand palace of a place. It was home to the city's judges, top lawyers, and doctors, people who were rising to the upper middle class and beyond. 
But here's the thing. The Bronx wasn't the richest borough in New York. In the 1950s, the Bronx was made up of immigrants who came to the area for a fresh start, mainly from Europe. I liked it down there. John Finucane is 80 years old. There was no money down there. But it was just uh, hardworking people, a lot of immigrant people. He grew up on 158th and Caldwell Avenue in the South Bronx in the 1940s and 50s. His parents immigrated from Ireland in the late 1920s. Well, they were parents, that is. And uh, it was the bottom of the, uh, what would you call it, the working class or something like that. Working mm-hmm. class. Was, they were good people. Hard what? times. But they were good. of course, I, it wasn't a hard time for me. I was only a youngster. My parents had the burden, not me. But in the 1950s, the population began to change. Migrants coming in were more often from Puerto Rico, or they were African-Americans escaping the Jim Crow South. People like Joe Zabala's mother, she grew up in Georgia. After she graduated, she came to, to New York City. She came to Manhattan. And a lot of people were migrating from the South to, to, to big cities because they, you can work. It was different for, 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 for Black folks. Joe's mom came to the Big Apple alone to Harlem, then to the Bronx, in search of a better life. Robert Snyder is a New York City historian and professor of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University. You had a huge migration of African-American and Latino peoples into New York City, right? Looking for exactly the same kind of prosperity that immigrants from Europe had found a couple generations earlier. Meanwhile, the descendants of white European immigrants, people like John Finucane's parents, were leaving the city for the suburbs. The pull factor of suburbia in the 1950s is much bigger than the push factor. The lure of the suburbs as they open up in Long Island and in North Jersey was profound for people. And by the 60s and 70s, the jobs were leaving the city too. Many of the jobs that had once existed in the docks and warehouses along the city's edge in the Bronx had moved to Newark, New Jersey. In the 30-year period between 1959 and 1989, over 600,000 manufacturing jobs in New York vanished. The price of one mile of the Cross Bronx Expressway, a half mile on each side of the Grand Boulevard and Concourse, including land, is $28 million. That's Robert Moses, the builder who was behind the Cross Bronx Expressway. That expressway was the first highway in the U.S. that cut right through the heart of a crowded urban neighborhood. And Robert Moses, well, he was one of the most polarizing figures in the history of urban development. Moses held 12 different titles in the New York area over 50 years, including New York City Planning Commissioner and Secretary of State. The Bronx will not be rebuilt to house middle-income cooperative tenants. The only hope of large-scale slum clearance and reconstruction until the jackals, critics, sensational journalists, and fanatical uplifters are subdued and there is sufficient support, official, press, and public, to induce men of courage to undertake the task. That task was completed in 1972, and the Cross Bronx Expressway split the Bronx, creating a wall between what eventually became North Bronx and South Bronx. There was a sense that the entire southern part of the Bronx was the South Bronx with a capital S and a capital B. 
Eventually, people began to talk of Fordham Road as the northernmost boundary of the South Bronx. He built the Cross Bronx, which just, yeah, devastated really wonderful, solid, you know, stable neighborhoods. That's Gilvin Stevenson again. In the north, upscale apartment buildings started to develop in places like Riverdale, with one mammoth complex in the northeast part of the Bronx. A co-op city opened up, so they just vacuumed people out of there. Co-op city was a huge development. By the time it was completed in 1973, 60,000 people moved in, many of them white, many of them Jewish, from parts of the South Bronx and oftentimes from the Grand Concourse. All these factors contributed to an outflux of people who could afford to leave and an influx of instability for those who were left. So, you know, by the 70s, this has all reached really devastating proportions. And yet what happens is as as conditions in New York City in the 70s slip, everybody slips, but poor people slip the most, right? And and that creates real problems in, in the South Bronx for the newest arrivals. Achieving the American dream was turning into an American nightmare, especially for people of color. Here's Joe Zabala again. Believe it or not, we all survived the fire. Our building yeah. in, on 103rd and, and 3rd Avenue in, in, in East Harlem burnt down. And that's how I ended up in the Bronx. That's how we, we moved to the Bronx. Same, the, the, what was happening to them happened to us prior. But I remember um, the building across the street from where we lived, there was a fire there one night. That's Gilvin's daughter, Gilvina Stevenson. We all had to like evacuate in the middle of the night because we were across the street. We could see the flames. Actually, I think we heard screams first, and then you you could actually see the the fire on the on the wall. Gilvin and his daughter remember the night the apartment building across the street from them was on fire. And it was just starting. You know, it wasn't. I mean, not not just starting. It it had developed a bit. And that, but then the family uh, were out, and my my kids knew them knew the kids, and they were out just in tears, just in tears, because everything was being destroyed. And if you think about it, um, all your possessions are just gone. You know, all the things you remember from your, you know, when you had it as a kid, that's what's tough. The, the fire kind of takes over. You know, it creates its own light. Gilvina remembers being about six or seven and her dad driving her to school. He's pointing out the burnt-out buildings. And I remember we'd be driving down the block, <laughs> and the building would be burned down. And he was like, "I was like, he was like, oh, that's arson." And then another building was like, "Yeah, that was arson." And I, for years, like until I was like a teenager, I thought arson was this guy. I thought it was a name. Uh, many times, I remember pulling up to these burning buildings. That's John Finucane again, the kid who grew up in the Bronx in the 1950s. John grew up to be a firefighter. He served in the South Bronx Engine 85 Ladder 59 during the war years. That's what they call the 70s. Seeing all these poor people crammed on the fire escapes, trying to escape in pajamas, half-dressed and so on, coming down barefooted to get out of the buildings, the burning buildings, and heavy smoke blowing out the windows. In 
It's hard to get numbers on exactly how many fires burned in the Bronx in the 1970s. According to experts and journalists who spent years researching and reporting on the Bronx fires, the data is incomplete, and in some cases, even inaccurate. Even firefighters say not every fire was recorded. But the numbers we were able to find through studies, books, and speaking to experts are startling. For example, according to the research team of Roderick and Deborah Wallace, between 1970 and 1980... In the South and Central Bronx lost 50 to 80 percent of their housing units and of their population. In some areas, 97 percent of buildings were destroyed by fire or were abandoned. That's according to Joe Flood. Flood is a journalist and wrote a book about the Bronx fires. He did an analysis on seven different census tracts in the Bronx. I mean, New York City has certainly hundreds, maybe, you know, over thousands of, of census tracts. So any given place is going to be very different. The number lost more than 80% of their buildings, say, uh, or population, but a lot of tracts did. And a quarter of a million people lost their homes. By the late 1970s, there were more than 40 fires a day. That's according to the research team of the 2018 documentary film on the Bronx fires, Decade of Fire. And according to Gelvin Stevenson, an economist and journalist by the late 1970s, there were 20 arson fires per day. He wrote about it for the New York Times back in 1977. Between 1964 and 1974, fires that were considered suspicious more than doubled. This was faster than the increase of murder, rape, assault, and robbery. Just who was starting the fires and why? This is where things get really complicated. When we first started our reporting for this episode, we wanted to answer the question, why was the Bronx burning? It turns out there isn't one reason. There are many. What we found was a complicated mix of policies going back decades, that led to a toxic soup. Policies like redlining and rent control, insurance schemes that raised rates so high for landlords that in some neighborhoods, it was more lucrative to burn the buildings down than to pay the premium. There were budget cuts too. And often, race and class influenced these policies. Like redlining, It goes back to 1933 with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. The Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation created infamous maps in 1938 with different color-based zones. Green, blue, yellow, and the dreaded red. Green was the best. Blue meant still desirable. Yellow, definitely declining. And red, hazardous. Oh, that that was sheer racism. Absolute sheer racism. That's Deborah Wallace again. She's an expert in urban epidemiological studies. She and her husband, Roderick, were one of the first people to look behind the scenes to see what was leading to the burning in the Bronx. The the definition of redlining is if a neighborhood has a, a certain percent of Black people in it, uh, it gets redlined and the people there can't get mortgages, they can't get insurance, that it's, it's the whole definition is based on the percent of the population that's black. A quarter of the Bronx was redlined in 1938. From redlining came insurance redlining, 
Essentially, insurance companies decided to pull out of the so-called hazardous zones, which were redlined. This got particularly bad after 1968. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Some of the worst trouble of the day occurred in Washington, D.C., the very heart of the nation. In some Negro ghettos, there was looting, arson, and bloodshed during the night. After Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, riots broke out across American cities, which led private insurance companies to further pull out of the risky zones, and the government allowed it. But that left landlords in the risky zones with no insurance to protect their property. And so the FAIR plan was the government's answer to that. The FAIR plan, F-A-I-R, and that's FAIR Access to Insurance Requirements. Gilvin published two articles in the New York Times about insurance redlining and the FAIR plan in 1977. I I found out about the the FAIR plan and why the rates were going up so fast. Because it was a self-contained pool. The same year the FAIR plan was put together in 1968, states were mandated to take control of the plan and set insurance premiums based on the state's self-rating system. New York's self-rating system was drastically different from other states in that risky areas were lumped together into one pool in order to assess the insurance premium, and they were high. By the late 70s, fair plan premiums in New York were two to four times higher, and in some cases, 10 times higher than regular insurance rates. That was painful for landlords. It pushed them to either raise rent when they could or abandon their buildings and tenants. Or sometimes set their buildings on fire. Then they could walk away with a chunk of cash. While insurance money was one incentive for landlords to abandon their buildings, rent control was another. During the time I was down there, there was one... It was a fire. John Finucane remembers an especially horrifying case of arson in 1969 on Kelly Street, a 10-minute drive from Roosevelt Gardens. The landlord had hired a former tenant to set an apartment building on fire. And uh, he got three kids to go into the apartment with a can of gasoline, soak it, and light it up. He shut the door on them. And one one or two of them died, and one got out through a hole in the wall. The one who got out, the third teenage boy, later died in the hospital. The New York Times wrote about it. The landlord's name was Albert Epstein. But the landlord in that case got sentenced to prison. That was one of the only convictions we ever heard of during all those thousands and thousands of arson jobs. He was sentenced to up to 10 years in prison. According to the New York Times, Epstein paid a former tenant as much as $3,500 to set the building on fire. He wanted to drive out tenants who lived there. Robert Snyder, the New York City historian, says it was a common scheme at the time. Because when you got him out of the building, you could bring the rental up price up to a market rate, right? At the time, many rental buildings in New York were regulated by rent control, making it hard for landlords to raise rates, regardless of maintenance cost. Landlords did not like that. Do you agree that, uh, with Mr. Rudin that uh, rent control is basically a cancer? Jim Lair from PBS NewsHour is interviewing a former real estate developer and Undersecretary of Housing and Urban Development, Jay Janis, in 1978. 
rent control, in my judgment, has not, not served the consumer, the consuming public in America, well. It's uh, stopped housing production or slowed it down. It has discouraged uh, multifamily apartment builders from building. Uh, it has not been a successful experience in our country. Modern rent control was first implemented after World War II when inflation was soaring and housing stock tight. Gradually, decontrol happened for luxury buildings. But then inflation and lack of housing kicked in again after the Vietnam War in the late 1960s. That's when the 1969 Rent Stabilization Act kicked in, which was more flexible than rent control. Landlords did not like that either. But in 1971, all that changed. A state-level law instituted what was called vacancy decontrol. That meant when you moved out of your rent-stabilized apartment, right, or your rent-controlled apartment, those controls, whether rent control or rent stabilization, was lifted. So landlords had a big incentive to turn over tenant. Unscrupulous landlords would do everything they could to get somebody out of a building. They would be really nasty. You know, they could get very, very ugly. Remember we told you Galvin Stevenson wrote about Roosevelt Gardens back in the 70s? That's because he was passing by the apartment complex one day on his way to work. But I noticed that it was, uh, oh, there were people sitting in front of it, uh, getting water in a bucket from a fire hydrant. The people who lived in the Roosevelt Gardens apartment complex were literally getting their water from the fire hydrant. I said, what on earth is going on? It's just shocking. The water had been shut off. What was happening in the South Bronx was now happening on the Grand Concourse at Roosevelt Gardens. We used to jump from roof to roof. My, my wife did. Steve and Margarita Juentes were teenagers in the 1970s in the heart of the Bronx. They joke about jumping from rooftop to rooftop back then. So I guess as kids, it didn't really bother you too much. It wasn't like you guys were scared? No, it was a part of life back then, you know? You know, go to the park, play the congas, Latin music, dance. It was an escape from what was going on. And a lot went on. Steve grew up on Eagle Avenue in the South Bronx, often visiting his grandmother, who lived there. My grandmother just finished paying her house off, and then it would, that's when they had all the burning, the fires and everything. Right, the Bronx, right, right after, Avenue. Right after your right grandmother? After she made her payment, yeah. Oh the my house goodness. got burned. And they, they had a lot of people on drugs that give money to burn the houses down. Yeah, in those days, it, it was bad. I mean... There was all the apartment buildings were being vandalized, burned, broke down, you know, just just like a, a ghost town, pretty much. If you ride that two or five train back in the seventies, uh, 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 all you seen was burnt buildings. They was the, the frame would be there, but you can see that the, the, it was torched. That's Joe Zabala again the kid who moved with his mom to the Bronx in the 1970s. When you walk through it, you just smell fire. You smell fire. It wasn't even burning no more, but you smell it. Buildings were abandoned, then torched. Conditions got so bad that even when they weren't burned out, people eventually left their apartments. In effect, 
by letting their buildings go, landlords could raise the rent. Once the building was destroyed by fire, the people in surrounding buildings who could leave did. And the process would start all over again, like a game of dominoes. Fire, abandoned building. Fire, abandoned building. The South Bronx was completely burned out. Burned out. And when it was burned out, it worked. The people moved over to the West Bronx. And then the West Bronx started going also up in flame. That's how it worked. So the concourse was, uh, the people in the concourse, as I said before, they moved out and went up to Co-op City, and the people in the South Bronx moved into their residences and so on, their buildings. And that's all, all, all it was, was a, a spreading of the fire. It wasn't just rent control and insurance incentives leading to fires. There were other factors, too. Ones that would set the Bronx up to fail. I'm very pleased to announce that the Rand Corporation and New York City are engaged in a series of discussions which will lead to a major involvement by the Rand Corporation in urban problems here in New York City. That's New York Mayor John Lindsay at a press conference in 1967. The Rand Corporation started out as a kind of advisory group to the military. By the 70s, it had grown into a think tank offering its services to local governments, like the city of New York. The city hired Rand back then to see if their computer models could bring some useful advice for city management. So in 1971, when the mayor asked the fire chief to cut a few million dollars from the firefighting budget, he turned to the Rand Institute for advice. They analyzed fire company efficacy by assessing response time versus fire damage. Well, these uh, computer models are going to help make fire service better. That's Deborah Wallace again. They closed fire companies in areas where fire companies had relatively high densities. Now, the reason the companies had high densities in those areas is because those were the areas of very high population density, housing overcrowding, old housing, Mm. uh, multiple dwellings. Uh, So those were the areas of high fire incidents. So they said, oh, you know, There's a lot of fire companies in that area. We can just take one out. But just taking one out meant that high-density and overcrowded areas, like the South Bronx, were suddenly facing the same amount of fire with fewer firefighters and fewer stations to serve them. You know, it really was a story of mistakes. That's Joe Flood. In 2010, Flood wrote a book about the closing of firehouses in the South Bronx. His audio quality here isn't the best, and we're sorry about that. The problem is when the data becomes an excuse to not think hard about complicated situations. And that's exactly what happened um, with the RAND studies. I mean, I I think just sort of on their face, um, closing literally the busiest fire companies, Rand's calculations provided a sort of logic that could explain counterintuitive behavior. The stations closed were some of the busiest in the world. And after they shut down, fire numbers went through the roof. So it it was a complicated mix. And I think that that's the environment in which these kinds of often confusing and unaccountable policy decision-making tools, you know, like these algorithms, um, where they really thrive. 
We reached for a comment from Rand, who told us that Wallace and Flood have, quote, mischaracterized the work that they did. They told us, Some firehouses were closed and units disbanded in response to the city's historic fiscal crisis, not because some computer ordered it to happen. The models were created after Rand researchers analyzed decades of fire calls and spent hundreds of hours observing dispatch centers, talking to firefighters, and riding along on fire calls. The Rand model and other independent data from outside sources continues to advise the New York Fire Department today. In 1975, the number of firefighters on the team were also cut. Now, each fire company had to fight a rising number of fires with 20% fewer men. And fire hydrants became a problem, too. Maintenance was cut. So sometimes, when you needed water the most, the hydrants didn't work. Here's John Finucane again. We used to have frozen hydrants and so on, too. But we always managed. We always managed to get that water on fire. Maybe the fire extended, don't get me wrong, because we didn't have water, but we got it. I mean, you hear these stories about, you know, companies from Queens responding to fires in the Bronx because, you know, nearly the entire borough is busy. Within five years after these cuts to the busiest fire zones, non-Bronx firefighters ended up spending triple the amount of time in the Bronx to help them out. They were exhausted and overburdened. They'd cut it down to two and one, two engines in one truck. And next year, it was sending one and one. And when you pull up, you got a major fire going, whoa, what the hell do you do? What do you do, you know? So you got to call for more help. But it takes time to get that help there. This is my home. I was raising my family here, you know? I didn't want to see it like this. And we who are living here end, end up with a, with, you know, kind of holes in the, in, the, uh, in the streets where the buildings used to be. For Gelvin Stevenson, watching people get their water from a fire hydrant was the last straw. So he decided to write about Roosevelt Gardens. Specifically, how in the world could a once grand building become completely abandoned? You know, that this is a perfectly good building. You know, you don't destroy good, usable, you know, valuable properties. You know, it is really, you know, for this Presbyterian kid from the Midwest, that was a real, it was just shameful. Gelvin had been an editor and writer at Business Week. He's kept all of his notes from back then, 80 pages neatly organized in a packet. He's got copies of building deeds dating back to 1922, rental data, building violation reports, Letters from tenants. The story he told was about a building that once promised a dream of upward mobility, but was then left to rot by the landlords, by the financial incentives, and by the system. The New York Times rejected it, but the Bronx Museum eventually published it. It was just easy to blame the victim. And it's visible. You, you can't see real property transactions. You can't see the insurance payments. You can't see all of that um, kind of economic material, uh, those dynamics that are going on, those are invisible. <laughs> who, who else would go to the to real, you know, for real property records <laughs> but a nerd like me? <laughs> yeah, right. In 1975, the city bought Roosevelt Gardens. Some officials called it the spine of the Bronx, that it had to be saved. 
they converted the complex into subsidized or Section 8 housing. Soon after, the city sold it to Herman Krauss. My father was a self-made man. That's Stephen Krauss, Herman's son. He was about 10 years old when his father first started rehabilitating the building. It was a disaster. I can't say I specifically remember every part of it, but I do remember being scared by dogs. There were wild packs of dogs that, you know, first you see a dog, you think, oh, where's the owner? There was clearly no owner to these dogs. So they're just roaming freely through the development. And the courtyard, which you could see at one point, it it must have been beautiful pre this era, was just so dilapidated. In 1980, Roosevelt Gardens reopened. Krauss received 10,000 applications for the 291 units. Remember the teenagers who jumped from rooftop to rooftop of abandoned buildings? Steve and Margarita Juentes? Margarita applied. She moved in in the early 1980s. I was happy. The five and a half room I had, um, the place was so nice. You know, it was real pretty. The apartment was nice. The people was nice. It's where she met Steve. So, you know, when they say, what do you say that, um, uh, destiny? Yeah, that's, a, that's how I would say it. It was meant to be, I guess. Then if we fast forward to um, the Bronx Fire's ending, what ended it? Part of the explanation is some neighborhoods just bottomed out. That's Robert Snyder again. Mayor Ed Koch deserves a certain amount of credit for rebuilding the Bronx after the southern part of the borough in particular was flattened and ruined. His mayoralty was important in rebuilding the Bronx. In 1978, Mayor Ed Koch formed an arson strike force to try and stop the fires. It consisted of the fire department and other city agencies. Also, in 1978, an amendment was passed on the fair plan that Galvin had written about in the New York Times. This amendment was called the Holtzman Amendment, named after Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman. She had read Galvin's article the year before and invited him to testify in Congress. This amendment made fair plan rates equal to the rates of private insurance companies. That helped remove one of the potential factors contributing to fires. I said, wow, this is, this is really groovy. This is how this stuff works. <laughs> In 1986, Mayor Koch also declared a 10-year plan to rebuild destroyed homes. The city eventually put up $5 billion. But what it came down to was the array of approaches. For-profit, non-profit, and the community that rebuilt the Bronx. A lot of small community organizations did heroic work. A lot of nonprofits did a lot of work. There was no single entity that did everything, but a lot of partners had to be brought together. By 1993, the Arson Task Force reported a 70% decrease in New York City fires. It took 15 years. As Bronx residents and the city tried to end the fires, something else was born out of the ashes. Hip-hop. Early DJs in the South Bronx like DJ Kulherk and his sister Cindy Campbell quite literally held jams in burnt-out neighborhoods, sometimes to raise money for school. This inspired other hip-hop artists like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five with their iconic song, The Message. Trying not to lose 
<laughs> Hip-hop kicked off strong social messages and the sound of survival from the Bronx that nobody could burn down. When we visited the gardens, we were struck by the peaceful courtyard, the very courtyard we saw on the blueprints at the Bronx Department of Buildings. There's a plaque of President Theodore Roosevelt in the middle, where the fountain used to be. We met a few kids while we were there. Remember Joe Zabala, the man whose mom moved from Jim Crow South Georgia? His 12-year-old grandson, Jacob Hernandez, lives here. He has big plans. He wants to play football, go to college, and make it in the NFL. Take me to my college. Then when I get like to the NFL, the professional league. Roosevelt Gardens has remained affordable housing since the 1970s, and it still has its issues. Parts of the building are crumbling, and just last year, the gas pipes were not working for months during the COVID-19 pandemic. Next year... Roosevelt Gardens turns 100 years old. According to Stephen Krauss, there are 1,000 people on the waiting list to move in. Shoe Leather is a production of Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Anna Muto, and me, Leanne Herter. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian, Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian, Michelle Wilson, Michael Barbaro from The Daily, civil rights attorney, Ron Kuby, Madeline Barron and Samara Freemark from In the Dark, Emily Martinez and David Blum from Audible, Susan White from Garage Media, Professor Dale Maharaj, Vivan Marid, Elise Manukian, Rachel Pilgrim, and Josh Lash. Additional sound mixing by Peter Leonard. Shoe Leather Theme Music Squeegees is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunez, and Camille Miller, remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thank you to film director Gretchen Hildebrand and Vivian Vasquez Irizarry from Decade of Fire and to Gelvin Stevenson, who shared their original research with us. Also, a special thank you to my dear friend, Jose Stevenson, who put us in touch with his father, Gelvin. To learn more about shoe leather and this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest shoe leather happenings, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at Shoe Leather Cast.